Good morning. Well, greetings to you from your twin sister, Restoration Church in Washington, D.C. If ever you find yourself there, we're right there in the middle of crazy town, as I like to call it. Uh, Northwest side, American University, National Cathedral, that's where we're at. Um, so it's our joy to, to minister the gospel in that area. And um, uh, I love this church. Uh, our church prays for you often. And uh, I think of you often. Uh, every time I come here, I say the same thing, and it's still true that for some reason we had to leave Washington, D.C., or I died and my wife and kids didn't know where to go. Uh, and I'm not kidding when I say this. I would say figure out a way to get to Tampa and just come to this church because I know that they'd be cared for. I know that they'd be cared for, they'd be taught the word, they'd be prayed over, and uh, they'd have deep and abiding friendships. And so for the ways... Uh, Covenant Life Church, that you're pressing the gospel into this community. I thank God for you. Keep going. Uh, your pastor has the ministry of embarrassment in my life. He embarrasses me more than anybody else I've ever met. And uh, my wife makes fun of me because I try to do it back to him, and it's never very good. Like, it's not nearly as good. Um, so I, I'm getting to the point where I'm going to just stop trying, but just let him make fun of me all the time and just take it and earn my crowns in heaven. But... Uh, uh, I just am really thankful for you, and I'm thankful for the friendship that we share, the partnership that we have in the gospel. Uh, we're working through the book of Thess First Thessalonians right now, and the first, one of the first things that Paul says is he thanks God for the church's steadfastness of hope, for their labors of love. And, uh, and, and I use that as an opportunity, or works of faith, as an opportunity to point our church to the fact that we so often think about the, the material stuff as the blessings of God. But Paul seems to be mentioning the immaterial things that are such a tremendous blessing. And so I'm so thankful for the, uh, the immaterial, the, the spiritual blessings of this church and the partnership that we have therein. So keep going in the work of the gospel. Let me pray for us, and we're going to dive in here to Romans 8. Fathers, we turn to your word. We, we do so because we're needy. We live in a world that's so full of brokenness, doubt, and despair, and all of us long for it to come to an end and to have everlasting peace and love come. And Lord, we believe that's what you teach us. And that's what's coming. We're almost home. Help us to consider it now. Amen. Well, many of you know who Michael Phelps is. Michael Phelps is the most decorated Olympian of all time. Uh, he's an American swimmer. Uh, Phelps has accumulated some 23 gold medals, three silver medals, and two bronze medals. But what you may not know is what it took to get him there. In preparation for one particular Olympics, Phelps did some 75 workouts in 24 days. From 1997 to 2005 or 2006, he averaged some 10 workouts per week. He said all he did was eat, sleep, swim, and lift. Pool workouts were from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., then 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., and then 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. He would swim almost 50 miles per week. He would consume some 12,000 calories a day. And we ask, why? Why would you do this? Why would you put yourself through such carnage? 
Phelps' answer to that question was, quote, my goal was to win one Olympic gold medal. That's why he did it. Michael Phelps disciplined his body, put it through rigorous training. Why? Because the hope of future glory. Future glory motivated his present obedience. The future hope of glory ordered his life in the present. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the same it is for us. The story of Michael Phelps is an illustration of a core biblical principle, which is the hope of future glory that should also motivate our present obedience. We can consider Moses, right, in Hebrews 11, considered the reproach of Christ, future Christ, as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to that reward, so he led them, the Israelites, out of Egypt. It was the land of milk and honey in Canaan before them that led the Israelites to, con- to continue their wandering in the wilderness. It was the cross, the joy set before Christ that had him to endure the cross. And so do you struggle in your love for Christ and your service to people? Do you find it difficult to press on after having experienced some kind of hardship? To any of you are that are not Christians, unbelievers here. Do you, have, uh, do you see a world of brokenness? Maybe you saw the news and wandered into this place and you're tempted to give up and you want a better world. Well, look to the certainty of future glory of heaven and be strengthened in the present. That's what we'll consider this morning. Hope in future glory in order to be strengthened for present godliness. That's what we'll be considering this morning. And again, we'll do that from Romans chapter 8. Just a little bit of context for the book of Romans. We are picking up midstream to the argument that Paul's making here. Paul is writing to the church in Rome from his little church plant in Corinth. He begins at the beginning of Romans with creation in the first chapter. He then narrows it to heaven in chapter 8. He's trying to help the church in Rome understand how the whole world comes together in Christ. Just before our passage in chapter 7, he's talking about his struggle to to change, his struggle to change as a Christian. And what he's going to do is to help us see how to be motivated to keep going in that struggle, to press on, to keep following Jesus. There's a thousand amazing things that are thrown at us. Sometimes Romans 8 is called the great eight. There's just so many things in this chapter. Um, But we're going to really focus on chapter 8, verse 24a. For in this hope we were saved. That little line floored me in my sabbatical five years ago. That's going to be the passage we'll think about most clearly. And I'll just sort of observe some things all around it. First point. Salvation comes by trust in past grace and the hope of future glorification. Salvation comes by trust in past grace, which fuels our hope for future glory or future glorification. Take a look at verse 18 there. Paul says that all creation is groaning, and it's groaning because the Lord subjected it to corruption as a consequence of the fall. All right, so as a consequence of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against God and go their way, go in their own way, God subjected creation to to corruption. You see that in verse 20. And when they chose to rebel against God, sin, death, and corruption then enters into the world. So in other words, guys, creation was like a tall, fresh 
cold, clear glass of water. But because of the consequence, uh, as a consequence of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against God, God permitted poison to enter into that tall glass of water, corrupting the whole thing. And this, by the way, is how death and disease, corruption, brokenness enter into the world. Brokenness, friends, is not the consequence of socially constructed ideas. That is not why things are the way that they are in the world. That's a man-centered way of understanding the world. But corruption, brokenness, these things are the consequences of a world that rejects the good authority of God and wants to go instead its own way. That explains how we are. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 8 is creation eagerly longs to get out of that corruption. It longs to not just return to what it had in Eden. More than that, it longs to give birth to an even greater glory that it will have in the new heavens and the new earth. But how will that glory come? How will that glory of the new creation, how will it come? What is the hope of creation to reverse the curse? We'll look at the end of verse 20. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation is groaning under its bondage to corruption. It wants to obtain, it says there, it wants to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what it's looking at to be set free. But what's that? What's this freedom of the glory of the children of God? What is it? Verse 23. It's not only creation that groans this way, but those who hope in Christ, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, comma, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says that creation groans and eagerly waits to have the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And the glory of the children of God is what we call full adoption as sons. And what's full adoption as sons? He says the redemption, the resurrection of our bodies. By the way, this is a unique piece that Christians understand. We believe that the material is important. And so in case you're wondering, some of you, uh, if you thought that maybe you thought that Christians were already adopted, because Paul calls this adoption, so we're waiting eagerly for the adoption. And some of you are going, well, I thought we already are adopted. Well, we were. Slide back up to verse 15. You can see there where we have adoption. But this is that notion of already, not yet. We have adoption. But we, do, we do not yet have full adoption. The full privilege of our adoption are realized when we receive the freedom of glory, verse 23, the redemption of our bodies, or in a word, glorification at the return of Christ. Glorification for the Christian is when, like Jesus, in his resurrection, our sanctified soul comes together with our glorified body at the return of Christ. So we have the first fruits of that adoption spiritually now, but we still wait for that full adoption. I'm sure there's probably some adoptions in this room that maybe have happened in our church. We had one couple, the Wisners, they adopted a Parker from uh, from South Korea, and they were given full rights. Parker was theirs. He was theirs. But then it took months for them to go and actually get him. That's sort of what it is for us. We're in that already not yet period. 
Paul talks, or actually John, the Apostle John talks about this in 1 John 3, 2, when he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. I love how Spurgeon riffs on that. Not as he was, as he is the glorified Christ. We will see him and be like him. So Jesus died for sin. You should know that. So this is the gospel, the good news, right? We are sinners, separated from God. Christ, fully God, fully man, takes on flesh, lives a sinless life, and amazingly goes and atones as a substitute for sinners like us, therein taking the penalty for the sins of those that trust him. And his righteousness gets transferred to the believer, counted as forgiven. Jesus died for sin, rose three days later, ascended into heaven, and will return bodily to bring heaven to earth. That's the final stage, the final chapter, the full adoption, full redemption and restoration. Guys, that's our hope as Christians. That's our hope. This is heaven, glorified bodies, worshiping a glorified Savior on a glorified earth. Creation is longing, it's groaning to see that day come about because it knows that it will be glorified on that day. Creation is aware of that in some sense, right? There you have the final state of a world completely restored and glorified. Everybody longs for a better world. Christians have promised that it's true. Gives clarification to that. And after it becomes glorified, it is after this, guys, that we get those words that floored me in Romans 8, verse 24. Take a look at it again. After considering all that we just did, Paul then says this. I was reading this on my sabbatical. I was thinking about the hope of heaven, and I came to this line, and it just floored me. I probably read over it a thousand times and didn't notice what it said. Romans 8, 24a. It was in this hope we were saved. The hope of glorification. In that hope we were saved. What hope is he talking about? The hope of glorification. Paul says that it is the hope of glorification in which we were saved. So Covenant Life Church, I ask you this morning, does that surprise you a little bit? It did me. Here's why. Think about, you guys have a members meeting tonight, right? So you guys are going to take members in, maybe put people out, right? Uh, binding and loosing. And when you take members in, right, one of the things you're looking for is their rehearsal of the gospel. And what are you correctly, I want to make this clear, I don't want Justin to rebuke me and the elders to rebuke me. What are you correctly looking for when you bring members in, in their rehearsal of the gospel? You want them to understand in some aspect the doctrine of justification, right? That they repent of their sins, look back at the cross of Christ to atone for their sins. You're listening for that, right? That's what you're looking for. You're right to do that. By grace through faith and the atoning work of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, they have been counted righteous. And that is critical and that is right. So, again, I don't want that. I want that to be really clear. I don't want the elders to rebuke me. Yes and amen. The reality is, though, folks, you will never be more justified than you are right now. You ever thought about that? Your righteousness is Christ's righteousness. It's a perfect righteousness. It's been counted to you. That righteousness will never be more than what it is in this moment. But we still lack something. We still lack that glorification, right? That full redemption, that full adoption. We still lack glorification in heaven. 
That is why Paul goes on to say in verses 24 and 25, we don't hope in something we already have. See it there? For those of us in Christ, we already have justification. We don't need to hope in it as such, but we do not yet have glorification. And that's why Paul says it is in that hope that we are saved, that full adoption. Listen to how Paul, listen to how J.I. Packer puts this in his book, Knowing God, which is a fantastic book. I don't know if it's in your bookstore. If it isn't, it should be. All right, Charlie says, yes, it's out there. So this is what he says. This is how he describes it. Uh, Packer says, justification, this free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough, he says. But justification does not of itself imply any intimate uh, or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, he says, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the church, in justification is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by, the God, by God, the Father, is even greater. Unquote. We as Christians are people of hope because our greatest hope, our greatest certainty is not yet realized. We do not yet have what we want to have. Bodies, resurrected, glorified bodies, meeting with our Father face to face with glad-hearted love. Still waiting for that. God has not yet glorified these broken bodies. My back has been killing me this week. I've been thinking about that. My eyesight is nosediving in the past six months, uh, right? And it's not just that I want that stuff gone. I want the glorified body, and I want to be with him, right? One of the things I love about uh, going to other churches and worshiping with you is to think about how we're all going to get to do this together one day. And that hasn't happened yet. What we want as Christians, right, is what Jesus prayed for. God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Resurrected body on a resurrected earth because of the resurrection of our great redeemer, Jesus the Christ. That's glorification. Or as we more commonly refer to it in Christian circles, heaven. And so hopefully by now you can see why I was floored by reading that. Paul says the hope in which we were saved was the hope of glorification, of heaven, future glory. Not just past grace, future grace. And I think if we were being honest right now, my guess is you're a little like me. You don't think much about heaven. And yet Paul says that's the hope in which we were saved. So second point. The hope of glorification is the fuel for present sanctification. The hope of glorification is the fuel for present sanctification. So in verse 18, Paul talks about present, our present sufferings. These sufferings tempt us, don't they? Look at verse 18. We talk about these present sufferings. The, these sufferings tempt us. They tempt us to give up. They tempt us to walk away from the faith. Or we might be tempted to think about the presence of suffering equals, therefore, a disfavor with God. You ever thought that before? All right, bad things are happening. God's against me. 
And again, we might be tempted to walk away from the faith. But Paul, though, moves from discussing suffering to discussing then glorification. As we have rehearsed. And that is the context for that much beloved verse in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then after that, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he lands his argument at the end of the chapter by declaring that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have the acknowledgement, verse 18, of weakness and suffering being counseled by the fact that God is not only doing something now, but he is working all of the stuff together now for that future glorification. And you can see that in the middle of chapter 8, verse 31, when he says, and for though, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also, notice the finished tense, he glorified, finished state. Present weakness is informed and inspired by future glory. So presently, we can be separated from God's love. He's he's working all things together, though, towards one great end, towards future glory. Therefore, Paul's instruction to us is to have us to consider God's past grace of justification at the cross. And that then gives us confidence of future glory when we will have the redemption of our bodies. Therefore, it should then compel us to be faithful in the today. You follow? Look back at past grace. He was faithful back then. He's promised us future grace and glorification. Therefore, I could trust him to do what I need to do today. This goes back to my introduction about Michael Phelps. The hope of future glory compels discipline in the present. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews understood to be the case with Abraham, with Moses, with David. That's the way Paul understands it for us. As one observer, wise observer put it this way, he said, quote, if, if you want to build a boat, don't drum up people to collect wood and assign them tasks, but instead paint for them a vision of the immensity of the sea. And so that's what I'm going to do. That's how we're going to spend the rest of this sermon. I'm going to try to give you a vision for the immensity of the sea so as to motivate us to follow Jesus in the now. So to review, we've said so far, salvation comes by looking back at our justification and forward to our future hope of glorification. Secondly, we then observe that the hope of future glory is fuel for present obedience. And so now what we're gonna do is two things. I'm gonna show you why heaven is so glorious such that it's worth suffering for. That's what Paul does. And then we'll finish by helping cultivate a hope in that heaven. How do we do it? How do we go about it? So third point, why is heaven so glorious and worth suffering for? Again, in verse 18, Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he goes on to explain everything that we just have been discussing, namely that the glory of heaven, the glory of a resurrected earth, populated by blood-bought, resurrected bodies of the redeemed, basking in the glow of our glorious Savior, Jesus the Christ who laid his life down for us. This, in other words, Paul is saying that if you took the suffering that we have to experience both spiritually and physically in this world, in this time, if you were to compare that suffering, that difficulty to the glory of life in heaven, Paul says it's no contest. It's not even worth comparing them. It'd be like asking the question, let's see, which is heavier, 
a 2023 Ford F-150 or this microphone, right? He'd be like, no, don't even, we don't even need to bother to ask the question. They're not even worth comparing. Another illustration, and I use this illustration with fear and trepidation. You should know that. Childbirth, right? I've been given permission by my wife to use this example. She's birthed two children. I was in the room. It's very difficult. But if you were to ask them, if you were to ask mothers, was it worth the pain? Was it worth the suffering to have the child? What would they say? Yes. Paul is saying the same thing for the coming of heaven. We are in now in the pain of childbirth, aren't we? I'm so sick and tired of reading about homicides, deaths, and gang violence in my city. Wars and rumors of wars, hurricanes and the like. We are in the pain of childbirth, but a child, a future love, as it were, is worth the pain to continue trusting him and walking it through. In the return of Christ, when he comes and establishes on the earth peace, love, and justice on the earth, when evil is vanquished, sent away to everlasting punishment, and we put on everlastingly glorious bodies and live on a glorified earth, it will be so amazing that like childbirth, these present sufferings to hold fast to Jesus and to one another is going to be worth it. Stay the course. It's going to be worth it. Cancer, car accidents, murder, heart attacks, persecution, martyrdom, mockings, depression, shame, and whatever other physical sufferings you have. They are not even grains of sand in comparison to the immensity of the mountain of the Lord that is coming. Same with spiritual sufferings. Doubt, the struggle to obey the Lord's commands, to memorize scripture, to show up to church on time, to love neighbor, to love enemy, to pray, to fast, to forgive, to give, to prefer others more than ourselves, to evangelize. All these struggles, these sufferings, they can't even said to be flickers in comparison to the light of the sun. All of these sufferings, spiritual and physical, they are momentary feathers in comparison to the eternal weight of glory in heaven that is being prepared for us to believe. Soon enough, beloved, your back pain, your cancer, your depression, your shame, your guilt, your struggle to do as Jesus would have you, soon enough these struggles will cease And beloved, you will rest on the eternal shores of the Jordan River forever. No more pain, no more crying, no more difficulty. Soon enough, those struggles will cease. And you, beloved, will eat honey and drink milk of the new Canaan. And it will be fantastic. You will sing songs along with the angels about the glory of Christ. You will bask in the glow of a glorious Jesus that made it all possible for his everlasting glory and your good. You will work. Yes, we will work in heaven. Go read Isaiah 65 this afternoon. We will work. We will have a job, but every waking moment of that work will be better than the best vacation you ever had. It'll be so full of joy. You will attend church, and it will not put you to some level of boredom, maybe I'm, like I'm doing right now. It will be awesome. You will look forward to it, that church gathering, more than you look forward to Sunday afternoon naps. 
Thanks be to God, it will be filled with people that are not, that don't look just like me, right? It'll be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? From the north, the south, the east, the west, with all of their different shades and textures of hair and tonal languages coming together like a symphony on full blast for our great treasure, Christ the Lord. That's gonna happen. That's gonna happen. It's promised. We will eat the choicest foods and we will drink the choicest wines. We will take walks on roads that will blow delicate breezes across our glorified foreheads. The light of day will never fade as the glory of Christ will shine brightly forevermore. Isaiah tells us that for those who wait upon the Lord, you heard Justin pray this, Isaiah, for those who wait upon the Lord, our strength will be renewed. We will mount up on wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. The soil that we will sow in will be drunk with the glory of Christ. The air that we will breathe will be drenched with the excellence of Jesus because God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. He will be all and he will be in all because the dwelling place of God is with man. And that leads us to the most important part of heaven. Heaven, right, is the household of God. He is its fancy. He is what makes it glorious. Apart from him, there is nothing but darkness and decay. But in him, we have life. Christ himself in his resurrected body is the darling of heaven. And we will be dazzled by his infinite love, which will be infused in every aspect of the new earth. This, beloved, is our great hope. All of this and more. I wish I had words to describe it to you. If... Even the worst of our experiences here on earth cannot compare to it, then surely even the best of our experiences do not compare to it. Therefore, beloved, listen, do not live for this world. This is not home. We are pilgrims, sojourners. As Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Do not build your life where rust and moth destroy. Be dazzled by heaven's darling, by Christ, and live to be at home with him. For it is in that hope that we are saved. It is in this hope that we grow and persevere in the faith. Don't buy the trinkets that the world is trying to sell you. Resist the visions of the good life that present the world of darkness. This present world of darkness is attempting to deceive you by. You will never, listen, you will never have enough money. You will never have enough vacations. You will never have enough friends or family members. You will never have enough job titles to compare to the glory that is coming when Christ returns. The more this vision for your life takes over and sinks into your heart and becomes the great hope with which you live, the more you will know the joy of your salvation. Build your treasures in heaven. Not on earth. Rust and moth destroy. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Lose his soul. Well, some of you might be saying, all right, Nathan, I got you. But how in the world do I build a vision like this? How do I have the future glory of heaven motivate that? How do I practically do it? I see it in the text. How do I do that? Well, you need to begin, first off, by recognizing this won't come overnight, right? I think Justin prayed, somebody prayed this morning for appetites, right? Appetizers. 
You need to have tastes towards these things. So let's just lastly end by teasing out how do we go about building this future hope of heaven so that we would persevere and grow. So we've said, just to review quickly, we've said salvation comes by trust in past grace and the future hope of glorification. Secondly, we said the hope of that glorification is the fuel It's the intended fuel for sanctification. The more you hope in heaven, the more that you will walk the path of sanctification. And then thirdly, we've documented that heaven is not even worth comparing to this present world because it's so glorious. So now I'm going to help us just briefly apply this by four things, four ways. Here's the first. You're going to love this one. I'm assuming this happens all the week at this church. Sometimes my church likes to roll their eyes at this stuff, but it's really important. First way to build a hope in heaven, to build that future sight of glory, to motivate you to follow Jesus and keep going, join a local church. Join and meaningfully participate in a local church. Guys, if we're going to be oriented by heaven, we need to be meaningfully committed and acquainted with heaven's people. Just like if we wanted to know what life was like in Bolivia, Right, And we knew that there was this gathering of Bolivians over at this part of the city. We would go and hang out with them, right? And listen to what they would say and eat their foods and listen to what they said and what they sang and this sort of thing. So in the same way, if you're going to grow in your hope of heaven, you must join and meaningfully participate in a local church. And by the way, Paul assumes that in this letter. Take a look. Romans 8.22. Notice all the we's. Verse 22. For we know... The whole creation has been growing. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits uh, of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. Verse 25, 4, for in this hope we were saved. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so guys, yes, Jesus saves us individually. He loves us. He knows us individually, but we can have a personal relationship with him. Yes and amen. But Christ does not save us alone in order to keep us alone. Like any adoption, you were chosen to be brought up into his family, his life, his his bride, the church. Friends, I have never met a Christian, 48 years old, never met a Christian that was thriving apart from meaningful engagement in a local church. Never met one. And I've met dozens of people that claimed Christ and struggled to follow him that were not meaningfully part of a local church. So we are redeemed out in front of time as the church. And so therefore, uh, to neglect her is to neglect this sort of community of heaven that's existing out in front of time. Our life together is supposed to be an appetizer for our life together in heaven. And so if you want to grow in your love for Christ, move closer to his people and learn to love them and let them love you. Sometimes that second part is harder for some of you. Let them love you. Don't just date the church, commit to her, join a church and watch how the Lord can grow your vision of heaven by living amongst its citizens here on the earth. You know, I'm sitting here looking at Jay, Jay Pop and Tori and Doug and some of these guys, I've known them for years and I've watched how they've grown up. You know, Justin has been sanctified, you know, half a percent in the last 15 years I've known him, or 20 years I've known him. Still praying for him. He's going in the right direction. But I've watched his life, and he's watched mine. We, we have jokes where we just sit here and rehearse all these ridiculous things that we used to say to each other. Like, you know, we keep growing. And the great thing is, is we get to watch that happen together. 
when we're meaningfully put together. And that builds our hope in heaven. To have a vision of heaven, that future glory, join and meaningfully participate in the local church. Two, learn to wait eagerly. How do we do this? How, do, how does the future hope of glory motivate present obedience? Two, learn to wait eagerly. You can see that there in verse 23. I'm using Paul's counsel. Wait eagerly. Sounds like a contradiction of terms, doesn't it? Waiting eagerly. Well, interestingly, that word wait there in verse 23 is the same word that's used for the word hope. The image here is not likened to waiting in a doctor's office, doing nothing and just sort of waiting for something. No, it's a kind of hope-filled waiting. It's waiting or hoping eagerly. So when my boys were a little smaller, this is still kind of true today, my, my kids love getting, we love baseball and they love getting autographs. And so uh, we went to watch the Cardinals, that's my team, it was a rough year this year. I'm hoping in heaven a lot after this year. And what we would do is they would go out and before the game, we would get there early and Elisha, my youngest son, he was really passionate about those, those uh, autographs. And he would stand there with a ball on his tiptoes and he would just wait to see Matt Carpenter or Yadier Molina or Albert Pujols or one of these guys. He would wait eagerly. That's sort of what the image is. But the difference for us is, is they didn't have to wonder, Right? We don't have to wonder if the superstar is coming. We know he is. Waiting eagerly. Build rhythms into your life where you teach yourself to wait eagerly on the glorification of your body and this earth. So for instance, one very practical example. Ask the Lord to come soon in your prayer life regularly. Put that as part of your prayer life. Lord, would you come soon? That's, by the way, that's, that's the end of the Bible. Come soon, come soon. Make that part of your daily prayer life. Two, this is a fun one. I've done this quite a number of times and I've been so encouraged by this, right? Scripture seems to in indicate that maybe Jesus is gonna return by the eastern sky. So sometimes, you, this might sound a little weird to you, but it's actually helped me. Maybe it'll be helpful to you. I will sit and stare at the eastern sky and think maybe he's gonna come. I mean, I've just sat there and just, okay, not now. Okay, still not now, but maybe not, not now. But there's that building of the anticipation. He might come. He's coming. One day he's coming. Look into the sky. Easiest application you'll ever hear. Look to the eastern sky and wait for him to come. Third, remind one another that Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things right again. Don't do that in a trite way, right? Don't do that in a trite way like, hey, don't worry about it. Jesus is coming back. No, in a meaningful way, look at somebody with tears in your eyes and say, one day this is going to be right again. He's coming. Remind each other of that. Fourth, we've already done this one. Sing songs regularly that anticipate the soon return of Jesus. Our church loves to sing uh, on Jordan's Stormy Banks. It's one of our favorite songs our church loves to sing. I don't know if y'all have that in the repertoire. Charlie, if you don't, put that in there. Uh, hark, I hear the, hark, I hear uh, heaven's eternal. Help me. Hearts Eternal. I can't even pronounce the song, but man, we love singing that song. I can't pronounce the title of it, but man, just sing songs, both personally. Look, I keep this with me. Look, I did not plan this, all right? I keep this little hymn booklet with me, and I sing songs about heaven, personally, and then do it corporately as well. Wait eagerly for the return of Christ. Don't be found asleep. Thirdly, 
Join a church, wait eagerly. Thirdly, wait patiently. Wait patiently. Now, this sounds a little more like what waiting is, waiting patiently. You can see Paul's counsel to wait patiently there in verse 25. See it? This is hard, right? Waiting patiently is hard. How do we wait eagerly and patiently? Well, God wants his children to be eager about his return, but he wants the expectations of his return to be appropriate. So five years ago when we went on that sabbatical that I was led to this, we, we told our kids we're going to take them to Disney World for a day. It's, you know, we had to take a small loan out, but we could do it, right? We got in there for a day. And we were driving on the way down there, and my kids, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet, right? That is not waiting patiently, right? They were eager, but they were not patient. And we would respond to them in those moments like, we will get there when we get there, son, right? That's tough to do, but that's the frame, kind of framework we need to have. We need to, to fill our imaginations with the glories of heaven and, uh, that await us, and we need to eagerly anticipate it, but we need to legislate that anticipation by trusting Christ to come in the fullness of time. And we recognize, right? We need to recognize that's tough, right? It's been 2,000 years. Exactly how long will it take for our patience to wear thin and destroy our eagerness? Well, I was reading something on that sabbatical, a big old fat tome by Richard Baxter called The Saints Everlasting Rest. And he said in there to people that, it th that think it's been too long, Baxter said, as God has established the four seasons, so they come at the same time every year. And he said, and just as God promised to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt after 400 years, so did he come in that time. And just as Daniel promised that the Messiah would come in 77s of years, so did Jesus show up at that exact time. He went on to say, Baxter goes on to remind us that as God has given the stork, the crane, the swallow to know their appointed time, he will surely keep his time. When we have endured a hard winter in this cold climate, will not the revival of spring be seasonable? In other words, what he's just saying is look God at God's past grace and redemptive history and just look around at creation and notice everything comes right when it's supposed to. So in the same way, trust that he will in the same way. Wait patiently. God has never missed a single promise. There's one left, guys, one left for him to fulfill. He's fulfilled hundreds of them. There's one. Trust him. Wait patiently for it. Lastly, we'll finish here. Join a church. Look at the life together. Learn to wait eagerly. Thirdly, we'll learn to wait patiently. And fourthly, this is the most important one of all. Consider Jesus. Study him. Think about him. Hebrews 3.1 tells us that. Consider Jesus. Study him. Not as like a historical figure, right? Don't, don't study Jesus like you'd study Abraham Lincoln. Don't do that. No. Study Jesus like you would a lover. Consider his might. Consider his beauty. Consider his allure. Treasure how he speaks and what he says. We do a, I've done a Bible study with guys at times where we just walk through the, the passage and we ask this question. What's he like? What's Jesus like? It's been amazing to watch guys see him. Jesus begins to take on flesh. He's not just this abstract figure. What's he like? When you read the Bible, what's he like? Study Christ. 
Notice what he loves and what he hates. See what his miracles do. Consider that it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the suffering of the cross. And then pay attention to what happens to him after the resurrection. Study his resurrected life and body. And then map all of these things onto a view of creation that takes away all of the bad and enlivens all of the good. And you'll get a little bit of help to know that it comes from him and it's for him. Right? Colossians 1. All things are created through him. All things are created for him. Consider Jesus, the resurrected and reigning Jesus, the glorified Jesus. After all, right, he's going to be our chief delight. So just a little bit of warning for those of you that are wondering if you're in Christ or not. If you're bored by Jesus, you're going to be really bored in heaven. He's the joy. He's the central jewel of heaven. Consider Jesus. And so guys, if we are going to change, really, like really change, individually, corporately, we're going to have to learn how to rehearse our justification as a down payment to give us confidence in the future glorification so that we might get increasingly going in our present sanctification. I'll say that again. We are going to have to learn. If we're going to grow, really change, stay the course. We're going to have to grow in rehearsing our justification, past grace, increasingly learn to see and savor our future glorification in order that we might get going increasingly in our present sanctification. That's exactly, this is not me sort of figuring out a way to preach this passage. That's the grain at which Paul writes in Romans 8. It will be our gazing longer at the glory that is to be revealed to us in heaven. And soon enough, beloved, we'll be home. We'll get there. We'll be glad we gave ourselves to Jesus. So stay the course. Consider him. Wait patiently. Wait eagerly. So that when he returns, you'll be ready. And may we do that together. For this future hope of heaven, Paul says, it is by that hope that we are saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we are mindful of the groanings. Some of us in this room are groaning. We see in creation there is groaning. From small things to great things, we groan daily. And we long for it to be made right. Some of us are struggling with the fear of death. Or the, some of us are still grieving the loss of loved ones. Oh God, teach us to employ future glorification. There are some here that are not Christians. They have no hope. Teach them to look to Christ, to take away their sin, and lead them home to heaven with him. Oh God, let Covenant Life Church be a church that when people come here, they say of it, man, they sing about heaven a lot. They pray about heaven a lot. They remind each other of heaven a lot. May that be said of this church. And when we get to heaven with you, God, oh, the joy we will have to recount all of the different ways in which we would say, yes, it really was not worth comparing our present sufferings to this glory.
And so, Lord, as we take a moment of silence now, we ask that you would fill us afresh with the glory of heaven and heaven's darling, Christ the Lord.